Can He Do That is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Can you open up the map that you made and describe? <laughs> yes. This is a map of the United States. It's a county map. Dan Baltz is a reporter for The Washington Post who covers politics. And I brought him into the studio so that he could show me this map. Here's how I started out the project. The map has thousands of little counties on it, and each county has a color. On the side of the map, you have this legend that explains what each color means. And each color is, like, assigned a combination of letters. So one combination is, like, R-R-D-D-R. And then another one is, like... R-R-R-D-R. And then you get to bright yellow. Yeah, the, the yellow ribbon follows the Mississippi, and then it, you know, then it spreads out from there in some places. And that so color means D-D-D-D-R. It means a county that voted Democratic, D, in four straight presidential elections until 2016. And then Donald Trump got them to flip to R. And Dan believes that these counties have something important to say about the rest of the country and about the state of the Trump presidency. These are the Trump trier counties. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we're stepping outside the borders of the White House and the news of the week. And instead, we're going to go to another part of the country. And we're going to talk to real people about how they're responding to the ways that President Trump is pushing up against the traditional bounds of what it means to be a president. And these people, these are the people that Dan calls Trump triers. Well, it, it was not original to me. It came from um, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, who represents Northwest Illinois. She's a Democrat. And she said, when you think about the voters, they were so frustrated in 2016 that they were willing to try Donald Trump. And she said, I call them Trump triers. And she said, I think that the Trump triers are the ones who will, you know, in a sense, tell the tale for Donald Trump in 2020. These people that are on the fence, they're important because these people could be the litmus test for whether the country is going to stick with Trump in the coming months and years. For the last 18 months, Dan has been following some of these people, returning to these states in the Midwest to interview them again and again, because he wanted to see how their views on the president are evolving or how they've remained steadfast since the day of the election. And he says that the whole idea came out of this desire to answer a question. It started with a question, which is what really happened in 2016 and where, where can we begin to understand better why what happened had happened. And that's where the map came in. Ted Melnick, one of our data people here, has a great spreadsheet on election results. I mean, he's got a lot of spreadsheets, but he has this one on election results, which he shared with me. And it shows county by county how the elections have gone. And I took that after the election and began to kind of analyze it. And there was one column in this gigantic spreadsheet that showed you which party had won that county in five presidential elections um, dating back to 2000. So it showed like in order the presidential elections and whether they'd voted. For yeah, there was just it was either D or R. So let's say a county that had gone Republican all five elections just was R, 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 R. 
or, you know, R, D, D, R, or, you know, and so there's all kinds of, you know, there's various combinations of those two letters over five elections. You know, if you sort it in Excel, you find ones that would go D, 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 R, four elections in a row for the Democrats, and then in 2016 had flipped to Trump. In one way or another, Donald Trump had managed to scramble the sort of the electoral map and therefore the county map. Dan also realized that many of these counties were concentrated in a very tight cluster of states in the Midwest. There are about 100 counties nationally that fit that pattern, four, at least four in a row, and, and I think it's at least five in a row for Democrats and then Trump. Almost half of them are in those four states, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Minnesota. I mean, it's more than just that the, you know, these critical states in the Midwest had had turned the election for Donald Trump. You know, there's something in the water out here. So Dan went to go talk to these people in person. He talked to them at coffee shops and restaurants and grocery stores. He met with people in their homes and at their place of work. He hung out with people like Dan Smicker, a retired high school agriculture teacher and chairman of the Republican Party in Clinton County, Iowa. I'll tell you where... Trump got his Democrat votes is from working people that felt that the federal government had gone away from them, was not listening anymore. And those people are mad. They are bitter. If you could have seen the body language and the facial expressions and the voice infractions that they had coming in there, they're not going to go away. They have different views on a lot of different things, and they're not all consistent, right? It's not as though they have a consistent set of beliefs. A couple of things that were, I think, important. One was the degree of resistance, if you will, to voting for for Secretary Clinton. That came through even more strongly than it did during the election. And so they they kind of got to the point of voting for Donald Trump, in a sense, out of exasperation over the choice and a belief that, okay, I'll take a chance with somebody who's never been in office before and who, you know, says some, you know, outlandish and and outrageous things from time to time that may bother me, but he's going to be better than the alternative. The other was the combination of, I would call it, you know, the economic anxiety piece of this, this notion of, you know, people who had gone through or are, are still going through tough times, who feel as though in one way or another, fairly or unfairly, that other people have have it better and that they're kind of being left behind. That feeling of being left behind, that's what Dan heard from Kurt Glazier, chairman of the Republican Party in Whiteside County, Illinois. I think it was his simple slogan of making America great again. Like I said, I'm 49, and does your dollar buy you the same amount? Does it spend the same amount as it did 20 years ago? I mean, my dad never had to borrow money to buy a car. He was able to write a check and send me to college. We just wanted our... We we want to see our country again, back to the way it was again. Will it be? We don't know. (laughs) That's still a mystery that remains to be seen. The other was, I don't know what's the right phrase for it. I I shorthanded it as the the issue of national identity. 
who are we as Americans and what are we becoming as Americans? And the notion that the way Trump framed the combination of the immigration issue, secure borders, particularly the southern border, and when he talked in the campaign about the Muslim ban, that in one way or another, he was he was touching a variety of nerves of among a lot of people about kind of where are we going as a country and how do we kind of preserve the best of America, even as if we're assimilating a lot of people who, you know, don't necessarily look like us. And so, again, that came through, not with everybody, but you could see that that was a factor in it. And the more you talk to people and, the you know, the longer you're able to have the conversations, all of these things kind of weave in and out. You can't reduce it to a, you know, a simple, here's what happened. But one of the things I hope came through in the piece is that these are all, all these people that, you know, they were there in kind of three dimensions. And as Dan went back to do follow-up interviews, he noticed how their views were evolving in a number of different ways. For some people, like Dan Smicker, their support for the president has increased, actually in large part because of the Mueller investigation into potential collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. Dan Smicker said that the whole thing just seems like an effort to discredit the president. And he said, quote, they better make this stick because if it's just sour grapes, they're in a world of hurt. And then there were people like Andrew Chesney of Freeport, Illinois. He said that he approved of the president's actions and that he would vote for him again today, but that he'd started to feel disappointed with this one thing that President Trump wasn't bringing the Republican Party together the way that he'd hoped. But the thing that Dan found most interesting was that as he was doing these interviews, he started to notice this growing uneasiness among the Trump triers. People were seeing how Trump has continued to challenge the expectations and norms of the presidency, and they're not sure that they like it. There are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump in 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 the areas where I was and in all over the country, who are still, you know, completely with him. He can do and say whatever, and they are with him. But there are others who watch everything as it unfolds and, and watch the president tweet things and say things and do things. Uh, and they're, they're clearly uncomfortable with it. Dan had a line in his story that kind of encapsulates this phenomenon. He said, There is a deeper unease that filters through conversations with some of those who voted for him. A recognition that to gain something, they must give something. That to see policy changes they favor, they must tolerate behavior they sometimes find inexcusable. Well, that to me was the most intriguing part of the whole project. And it was one of the reasons that taking as much time as I ended up taking turned out to be valuable because um, what you got, I think, as a result of that was a sense of how the Trump presidency has affected people over a period of time and the degree to which some of them, not all by any means, but some of them are wrestling with this this kind of trade-off. Can He Do That is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Right now, go to zeal.com and enter promo code CANHEDOTHAT to get $20 off your first in-home massage. That's code CANHEDOTHAT. 
I didn't think that it was going to be a, a 24-hour chain of events continuously seven days a week. Yeah. I knew there was going to be some talk and some issues and some things, but I th you, you would th one would think that after a year and a half, it would that would slowly dissipate and maybe go away. I don't think he's learned anything. I, I, he wants to create attention. He wants to be the center of attention. He wants to create animosity amongst... He, he wants to stir... He's a stir, you know? Knowing what I know today, I would... No, I, I wouldn't vote for him. You would not? No, absolutely not. Yeah. No. That was Mike Valley, a fourth-generation commercial fisherman in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. And that sentiment about the sense of being overwhelmed with the constant tumult and chaos of the White House, that's something that Dan heard a lot from other people. One person who's really interesting is uh, Kurt Glazier, who's the Republican county chair in Whiteside County, Illinois. He works for the state He's a member of the Teamsters Union and just a very straightforward person. And he was one of the first people I interviewed and one of the last people I interviewed. And I think I interviewed him four times. And you could see over time that he he's just uncomfortable with, I guess, the disruption and the turmoil. That was a theme that ran through a number of, of the interviews and, you know, in the last interview, I asked him, you know, well, what what will you do in 2020? And he's not, he said he was not sure. He said people voted for Trump because they were voting for change. But he said, as I recall, his words were, but he's going to have to do a lot of changing. And he's 71 years old. And, you know, he said people at that age don't change a lot. So he didn't quite answer the question of where he's going to be in 2020 because I think he doesn't know. But he recognizes that something is not quite working the way. And his view going into this was when I said to him in the first interview, which was a week before President Trump was inaugurated, I said, what, do you, you know, what are your hopes? What are your expectations? And he said, I want him to make America great again. And when we talked about that at a later point, it, it was kind of bring the economy back restore the economy that we had at one point that we've kind of lost. And he had not seen enough of that over the course of the year and had seen staff upheaval at the White House and different things that the president did that, that he just didn't think were very presidential. So he was very, he was a very interesting, very interesting person. When you say that people like Kirk Leisure had concerns about the turmoil and disruption, um, in the Trump presidency? Like, what, what things are they looking at? They look at the tweets. They look at the statements that the president makes. They look at him at a rally where he kind of goes off script and rails at people. And several people use the term bully, that in one way or another, President Trump acted like a bully, and that that's not what they want to see in a president. So it's those kinds of things. I remember he talked about in one of the interviews about the Me Too movement. And he said, you know, this would be a time when a president would step up and kind of take that issue on and, and say the right things about the way men should treat women. And then he said, but of course, there was the Billy Bush tape, the Access Hollywood tape. And so, you know, he recognized that the president is in, is in a position where he cannot speak to that issue in the way that a president ought to be able to speak to that. So there were there were there were just a number of things. And it seemed like every time I went out to talk to people, 
you know, there were three or four more things that had happened or, or you know, or 10 things that had happened in the intervening weeks or months that kind of stuck in the brain of things that had bothered them about about the president. So, again, it's, you know, it's it's weighing the progress that they are seeing and they are seeing some progress with the behavior that they just find, you know, that they're uncomfortable with. Did they talk about their concerns in terms of, oh, I think that President Trump isn't the best president that he could be? Or did they talk about it in terms of, like, what this is doing to the idea of a presidency and that, like, all the ways that he's sort of breaking the rules is diminishing the sort of honor and respect of... of I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's focused personally. This is not the way he should be acting. But I do think that they think it diminishes the office, that it's some of the things that the president does are just not worthy of the office and that that bothers him. I think, I mean, I think all Americans have a respect for the office of the presidency of the United States, as, as we should. And that is built out of a set of norms based on the behavior of other presidents. And it's not as though the White House has been occupied by saints. I mean, we know that. Um, we know that there are presidents, you know, recent and distant who have been scoundrels and, you know, and misbehaved and had relationships outside of their marriages and, you know, you know a lot of things. But people are judged within the time frame that they are president. And that's, you know, so Donald Trump is being judged against the norms that people expect today. And people look at that and they want to be able to disassociate themselves from that part of the Trump presidency while continuing to believe in other parts of what the president is trying to accomplish and and kind of who the president is standing with. I mean, I had I had a conversation with a with a young Republican who's a candidate for state office for state legislature in Illinois. I, I happened to by accident or by, you know, by serendipity to talk to him the morning after the stories broke about the president using this vulgarity to talk about African nations uh, and immigration in a closed meeting at the at the White House. And I knew that this person had views about immigration that were not exactly Donald Trump's views. I mean, that he was, you know, he was more of a George Bush, George W. Bush Republican in terms of his views on immigration. And I asked him about it and he said, if these reports are true, it's unacceptable. I mean, just flat out unacceptable. We can't have this. You know, I said, well, kind of how, how long do you put up with that? Or how long do you stay with him, with a president who does those, says and does those kinds of things that bother you in, in the way you, you say? And his explanation was, look at the economy, look at the tax bill, look at this. And he said, I think for a lot of Republicans, you can do, you can do both. You can look with abhorrence on some of the behavior and not associate yourself with the inflammatory side while still supporting the kinds of policies and issues. Here's why this matters. The conflicted voters, people like Kirk Glazier, their response to these presidential actions could have big implications. Because Trump needs these voters. As much as he has this, like, energized base... That base isn't big enough on its own to carry a midterm election or to carry Trump into a second term of his presidency. And while it's way too early to reliably forecast what will happen in 2020, we're at this interesting moment. Because as Dan points out, President Trump's approval rating isn't great, 
but it has ticked up from the lows of last year. Unemployment is way down, the economy is growing, and for these critical Trump triers, all of that kind of complicates the picture for them. The kinds of voters who we see in these counties are the kinds of voters that Trump has to hold on to in 2020 to be able to win. You know, his base is not a traditional Republican base. His core supporters, some are, some are staunch Republicans and have been for years, but there are other people who don't think of themselves as rabid Republicans. They just like Trump and they were drawn to him for, you know, for a variety of reasons. There are others who I would put more in the category of being kind of traditional mainstream Republicans who started out the 2016 campaign for Rubio or Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or, you know, or Ben Carson or, but not Donald Trump. And when Donald Trump won the nomination, they, you know, as, as Republicans, they said, I'm going to vote for the Republican nominee. And I think some of the people I talked to were struck by the intensity that they were seeing in their counties of Trump voters, a, a phenomenon that they, you know, as active Republicans had not seen before. I mean, they recognized that something was going on that was different. I think those are the, f the voters who have some ambivalence because they didn't start. Trump didn't reach them right away. They gradually came to Trump. And so I think they look at him through a lot of different lenses and they're the ones that he's going to have to hang on to. Now, you know, if you look at what's been going on in Congress, you would say he's he's holding those Republicans. I mean, they're they're sticking with him. And I think for anybody running for office, that's going to be the case. But for some of the voters, you know, they've got they've got a little bit more freedom of choice. And so they're the ones that he has to be wary of and, and to make sure that that he does not lose them or then he'll have a problem. And and, and in those those are the people in these counties, I think, that are that are crucial. But the question is, will he manage to keep them? And Dan says that the answer is simple. We just don't know yet. One is he has to he has to begin to produce results on the kinds of things he said. One is bringing jobs back. Um, you know, some of these people like his trade policies, and the question is, are these trade policies actually going to change things? Uh, there's not there's not been much change yet. I think that the other is that if if he you know if he gave up his Twitter feed, <laughs> frankly, that would make a big difference. Um, but there's no evidence that he's about to do that. So, uh, but but again, um, you know, acting in a more presidential way, acting in a you know in a in a quieter way, um, pushing the kinds of things that they want, but without all the you know, all the side noise. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. One thing that we want to note, we're taking next week off, so you won't be seeing a new episode. But we'll be back on June 9th. And we also want to mention that we're working on something very special coming out at the end of June, a special mini-series about the midterms and what it takes to make a wave election. So stay tuned to hear more about that in an upcoming episode. In the meantime, we'd love if you could take the time to 
rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Comments and suggestions are always very much appreciated. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to Dan Baltz for coming on the show. smart speaker owners, if you like Can He Do That, you should also try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a daily political analysis show from national political correspondent James Homan. The Daily 202's Big Idea is available as a flash briefing on Amazon Echo, Google Home, and Apple HomePod. To learn how to listen and to find out what else you can do on your smart speakers, visit WashingtonPost.com slash voice. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.